Listener supported. WNYC Studios. What's your reaction to the killing of Jordan Neely? That was an example of somebody who was experiencing a crisis, more than one crisis at a time, but it's allowed us to take a look at how we as a society react to the circumstances that people deal with and and what has to happen in order for events like that to not happen. Our governments, all state, local, and federal need to focus more on the the housing crisis, the homeless crisis, because it's a bridge to drug addiction and whatever. You gotta get us off the street, you have to. The fact that we're not talking about the responsibilities that we all have with regard to humanness and how we treat one another, to me, is the missed conversation in this country. You need more people on the ground. You need more more conversation. That's what you need. Right now, it's just no conversation had with the actual people. But we're humans. We need each other. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. On May 1st, Jordan Neely was killed on a New York City subway train. He was a 30-year-old man who had been a well-known subway performer and who was also unhoused and struggling with mental health. He reportedly began shouting about his desperation on the train, and some passengers, who were presumably afraid that he'd become violent, reacted with their own violence. One man put him in a lethal chokehold, while others held him down. This past Friday, Daniel Benny, who put Neely in the chokehold, turned himself into police and was charged with second-degree manslaughter. The whole horrible affair has made a lot of people around the country sort of snap awake. In many cities, not only New York, homelessness has become a point of conflict, politically, socially, culturally, The brutal reality of life in this very wealthy nation is that many thousands of people have no place to live. Many of them also have acute mental health challenges. One of our listeners who responds to our call-outs and requests for notes, he confided to us in one of his notes that he's been unhoused and living in shelters at points in his life. So we reached out to him as we thought about this week's show and asked how he was processing what happened to Jordan Neely. His name is James Abro, and he said something that I think is a good starting point. You can't make laws and regulations to teach people how to be human or to have a spiritual outlook on life. Either they are or it's not. We're missing that in our education or something. If you're in the present moment, if that person who attacked Jordan was in the present and not in his mind, He would have saw that this was just a young kid crying out for help. He was desperate. So he wasn't in the moment with the experience. So all the bullshit that's been fed into his mind comes to the fore, and that's what takes over. You have to be present in order to be effective with people. I have learned to turn the other way when I encounter someone in a dark moment like the one Jordan Neely was experiencing on that subway train. I tune out the desperation when I'm on my way to work or dinner or back to my own home where I can close the door and turn the lock and feel safe and comfortable. A lot of us living in big cities have learned to do this. And Jordan Neely has forced many of us to become more present. But then what? 
These twin crises of housing and of mental health are truly overwhelming. It is not always clear, to me at least, what can be done about them right now. So this week, we are going to zoom in on one city where service providers and housing advocates and elected officials have worked together to find at least part of a solution. In Houston, the nation's fourth largest city, they have moved more than 25,000 people off of the streets and directly into apartments and homes over the past decade. According to a federal study in 2020, the city has done twice as well as the rest of the country at reducing the number of people who fit the official definition of homelessness. New York Times reporter Michael Kimmelman spent months looking at this success story and wrote about it last summer. He's the architecture critic for The Times and helped to create an ongoing feature there called Headway, which is described as an exploration of the world through the lens of progress. And Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So first off, uh, without getting into the asking you to comment on the details of Jordan Neely's case, just as somebody who has done the work that you have done here on the pressure cooker of homelessness, I just wonder how you reacted to the news when you heard it. Yeah, um, look, you know, with unbelievable sadness and horror, um, and who couldn't, um, I actually uh, tweeted something uh, from the African American Policy Forum, which I think speaks to anybody who who um, heard this story, which was, uh, the forum said, Jordan Neely did not just deserve to live, he deserved to live a better life than what our society decided to afford him. And I think... Um, the takeaway is, as many of the your, uh, people you were had recorded there and, and the voices we heard were saying, you know, homelessness is not a crime uh, in this country, and um, it's a collective failure in our society. And so, really, the, the question that comes out of that is, you know, not not what did Jordan Neely do, but w- what have we done or not done uh, to help people like Jordan Neely? Um. Uh, Headway, the the series that you're reporting was part of, as I understand it, was in large part formed by your own vision. And um, I mentioned that it aims to cultivate global conversation about how progress is being defined and measured. So what about Houston's approach to homelessness drew your attention as a key example of that for that framing? So I think this goes back a, a while. And I'll say in relation to the Jordan Neely case that um, – one of the takeaways that I, I felt immediately was, and look, like you, I'm on the subway all the time. I, I understand the the sense of uh, stress that people feel in the subway and the conditions that create um, some of that tension. But I think what's happened in a place like Houston is very important because the fact that Houston has been making tangible progress has, I think, created a culture down there which is more sympathetic to people who are in that condition, who are the most vulnerable people there are in our society, um, because they feel that that this problem is not intractable. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's really crucial. You know, when when you feel like you're facing a condition that you have no way to deal with, then I think your reactions change. And, and that's what's often reflected in New York City, a feeling, as you said yourself, of, of real yeah. helplessness. So when I started to hear a few years ago that um, homelessness had actually declined in this country, um, that stunned me because in New York City, I saw that it was rising. And 
Like a lot of people who spend time on the coasts, that's the story. It's what mm -hmm. we see, and it tends to be what happens within our bubble. But in fact, uh, I started to look into it and realized that since 2007, um, the homeless count has dropped. And the truth is... Nationally. Nationally. And the, the fact is that even since 2016, when it, has started, when it started to rise again, uh, it's still lower than it was in 2007. So that was the kind of sort of number that surprised me. It wasn't that that number was sort of unimpeachable or something, but w what did it signify? And I was, when I started to talk to people who dealt in homeless services, their their feeling was quite different than what you hear from most people just sort of on the street. And that was, this is a problem we can address. We yeah. know how to fix this problem. So I looked around um, to try to find where uh, that had happened in that was a place that was a meaningful city. Houston's a very complex city. It's big. It's extremely diverse. Yeah. Blue city in a purple county in a red state. So politically complex. Um, and everyone kept talking about Houston. Um, so I went down there and uh, spent a long time trying to figure out exactly uh, what, what they do right and what might be um, lessons for other cities. Um, and it was extraordinarily moving um, and complicated because mm -hmm. the truth is that Houston hasn't solved homelessness, but it has definitely done what every city could do, which is make tangible progress uh, at a problem that, you know, will never end, but can be dealt with. Right. The perception versus the reality of the problem nationally. Can we just unpack that yeah. for a couple of minutes? Um, you mentioned in your article, one in every 14 Americans will experience homelessness at some point. Certainly, there is this feeling now um, that it is on the rise. Um, but you point out that that's mostly concentrated in five states. Um, talk about that, this concentration of it. Yeah, I mean, first of all, that's absolutely correct. It's concentrated in the states you might expect, California, New York, and uh, uh, Washington, Oregon, and so forth. Um, but more than that, um, I think... Thank you for mentioning that. It's The fact is that many people in this country experience homelessness, one in 16. Most people are homeless for 60 days or fewer. So homelessness is not a, a constant condition. It's right. a thing that happens to, to many, 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 many hundreds of thousands of people. Many of us have been. I mean, I have had times in my life where I didn't have a place to go that exactly. night. Exactly. You know? Right. Um, exactly. We call it couch surfing, right? But right. it's homelessness. That's correct. You, you don't have your own home. And you are able to resolve that, um, but there are other people for whom those conditions are unresolvable, and that's a different category of people. But I think it's important to remember, homelessness is mostly people we know. We all have probably someone in our life who has experienced homelessness in some form at some point. And 40% of people who are homeless have jobs. So the, the image of homelessness, which is sort of, you know, magnified by the appearance of unsheltered people, often with mental health or addiction issues, creates an impression that that is homelessness. Right. In fact, that's simply not the case. That's a very small number of people who fall into homelessness. The system can work to help almost everybody else. And even those people are not necessarily homeless. You know, this becomes a problem too. You have people who have addiction issues. You have panhandlers. You have a lot of other people who are visible on the street. Their visibility 
suddenly becomes synonymous with homelessness. Right. But that doesn't mean that they are homeless. And I'm going to stop you. We're going to pick this up after a break. we got to stop for a second. And listeners, there is so much misunderstanding uh, about being unhoused in the way that we're talking about. And I want your help in that tonight. I have two questions. If you have been unhoused or had housing insecurity of any kind, what did people in your life or community misunderstand about that experience? What's something that you really wish they could wrap their heads around? Or question two, if you have learned something that changed your understanding about homelessness, what was it and how did you learn it? We'll take a break. I'm talking with Michael Kimmelman, architecture critic for The New York Times, about his reporting on the success story in Houston. When we come back, we'll talk to some of the, one of the advocates who helped create that success and take some more of your calls. Stay with us. Hey everyone, this is Natalia Silva. I'm a Brazilian journalist visiting WNYC studios. I'll be working with the Nose from America team for the next few weeks. One thing I really enjoy about this show is how much it talks to you, the audience. So do you know what would be really nice? Getting to hear what you think about the show. How do you feel about the conversation we're having today? Do you have any personal experience to share with us? There are a bunch of ways to engage with us. You can reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter at Notes with Kai. Again, that's Notes with K-A-I. You can also send us a voicemail. It's quite simple. You can record it right on our website. Just visit notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button that says Start Recording. At last, but definitely not least, you can email us your voicemails or written messages. Our email address is notes at wnyc.org. Thank you. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. And this week, we are zooming in on one city, Houston, where there has been measurable success in getting people who are living on the street into actual homes. New York Times architecture critic Michael Kimmelman has published a deeply reported article on Houston's effort last summer. I'm talking with him about that reporting, and I want your help in addressing misperceptions about being unhoused, which maybe get in the way of some of the solutions. So I have two questions for you. If you have been unhoused or had housing insecurity of any kind, what did people in your life or community misunderstand about that experience? What do you want them to get their heads around? Or question two, if you have learned something that changed your understanding about homelessness, what was it you learned and how did you learn it? Uh, so, Michael, at, before the break, we were talking about perceptions um, of homelessness, and you were saying, you know, there's a bunch of us, you know, that it's it's very common, actually. It's more than common than we understand. Um, but there are also different types of homelessness, um, and that's not the same as the kind of stuff, honestly, that is being addressed in Houston. Um, what? Just break us down a little bit, um, the, the different ways to think about it. Uh, the categories of homelessness and why that matters for the solutions reporting you were doing. So uh, 
sort of governmentally, homelessness is a, one of these very complex subjects. To qualify as homelessness, the government has all sorts of definitions. Chronic homelessness, for instance, which is a key category, is defined by somebody who has been homeless for at least a year or repeatedly and has a physical or mental disability. So, you know, you can be homeless and on the street for 11 months and needing of a house, but you don't fall into the category of being chronically homeless to get that kind of assistance from the government. You could be a veteran. You could be a youth. You could be a family. There are different categories, slices of the pie. And I think part of the problem is that the the way it's been bureaucratized has complicated and and confused people um, about the fact that co- homelessness is a much more common circumstance. And the real issue is that anybody who falls into homelessness should be able to have access to housing as quickly as possible. Homelessness can never be eliminated, but it can be rare and brief. That's the key, as Roseanne Haggerty, an advocate, has put it. So what Houston did, basically, which is really key, is to bring the organizations in the city together, hundreds of them, all of which operate independently, it operated anyway, and government and county groups, to sort of work together as a system and coordinate their services, which sounds just simple, but in fact, almost nobody does it. Well, I mean, speaking of it sounds just simple, let's let's bring in somebody who was part of that and and uh, find out how how unsimple it may have been. I want to bring in Anna Rausch, who is a vice president uh, of Coalition for the Homeless of Houston and Harris County, uh, who helped oversee this program that Michael is describing was uh, featured in Michael's article. Anna, welcome to Notes from America. Thanks for having me. So let's pick up where, where Michael was just talking about. What, what would you say was the city's approach before the changes you helped implement? And I'm going to ask you to describe what the changes were, but like, where, where did we start? What were the biggest breakdowns in the system? So back in 2011, we had the sixth largest homeless population in the nation. Mm. We Our partners were working in silos. We weren't talking to one another. So There were um, partners that were doing the same thing. So there was duplication of services because they weren't aware that other agencies were doing the same thing. There wasn't enough of certain services because, again, there was no communication. The recidivism was really high because we were not using the correct intervention strategies for individuals experiencing homelessness, like Michael was mentioning, people that are experiencing chronic homelessness or people that are just homeless one day are completely different. So if you put someone that has been homeless for a long time with a disabling condition into housing that's going to end in six months, then obviously they're going to be homeless again for the most part. In six months. Um, And so, I mean, it it was just those kinds of things that were happening. We were leaving a lot of money unspent. And once the the funds get recaptured, the city doesn't get it back. And so um, it was a wake-up call for us when we were designated as um, a priority community, which meant that we weren't doing a great job. And we did get some technical assistance. So we had some TA providers to come in town and convene everyone in a community charrette. And, it, you know, we looked at our data. We have a rich amount of data that we draw on to be, become more data-driven so that we're looking at how people are experiencing homelessness, how many, how, how people are becoming homeless in our city, and then um, figuring out how we were going to work together to get to that point. It was painful. Mm. Um, There was a lot of political will, though, which was great. Um, Mostly, you know, it was competition. We wanted to do better. We didn't want to be the sixth, you know, the city with the sixth largest homeless population. So 
it was it was about rallying up around this one task and saying, how can we do better yeah. as a community? Uh, earlier this week, one of our producers, Regina DeHere, she spoke to one of our listeners who's been unhoused here in New York uh, and has been a housing advocate. Uh, I played a little bit of what he told her earlier, and I but I want to share another brief reflection he had on his experience when he went looking for help, because it reminds me of something that I read about in your program. They're inflexible because they don't care. You know, if you, if you try to create a system that actually met the needs of the people, you would have to have some empathy. You would have to understand what the needs of the people were before you could do that. That's the step that's missing here. They throw you in these places. It's completely impersonal. And it doesn't have to be that way with the amount of money they spend on this. And Anna, I, I just want to ask you to react to that because, it, again, it made me think of your initiative because it seems like a big part of the work, which is also quite simple, was to deal with people on a human level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So it, back then when we weren't doing such a great job, it there was really, it was very challenging for an individual to access um, assistance, to get any kind of assistance. More than likely, they would be told no by multiple agencies. And then there was a lot of what we called side door um, stuff happening. So if I was if I was someone in the system that knew a bunch of service providers and I had a client, I could just call them up and say, hey, can you take my client into your housing program, um, even though that my client may not necessarily need that specific housing program. And then it's just human nature, I think, to want to serve people that are easy to serve um, and th- those that are extremely challenging to serve and have a lot of vulnerabilities. Um, a lot of organizations, didn't, a lot of people didn't want to touch that. And so the system that we created was about identifying those that were the most vulnerable and do it in a way to where um, it was centralized, it had better access, people weren't having to retell their story over and over, and then trying to move as quickly as possible to address their homelessness rather than having them sit on a wait list for years and years, um, which, you know, unfortunately causes people to lose trust in the system. So I, I get it. I mean, what he's saying is not wrong. Uh, I, we have a caller who I think is also wants to comment on exactly the kind of side door thing that you're talking about, Anna. Uh, let's go to Steve in West Orange, New Jersey. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, I've been going through this thing for a few years. And as a writer, as an artist or whatever, you know, uh, you can't make noise if, say, if you were in a, a, a senior citizen home. But I sailed up from the Virgin Islands 17 days with one eye because I had an ulcer on my cornea. And uh, I'd rather go to the ophthalmology at uh, the University Hospital, which now is Rutgers. So I had a little outbreak right now where my eye, I can't see too good right now. It's blurry. And, you know, just being in kind of darkness and staying out of the sun is, you know, I'm just waiting for the medicine to kick in and whatever. But when I tried to get housing in West Orange, there was this lady there named Mrs. Salinardi. She, I needed 15 cents to make a copy to fill out my paperwork. And she told me to go to the library. I said, we have a factory, you have a copy machine right there, you know? And uh, she just said, you know, I don't know what, but she just, I knew her grandmother and grandfather lived on my street. I says, are you, you, you related to Leonard and Kate? He says, oh yeah, that's my, 
So I said, well, you see that bird cage you got there? I said, you should, they should put you in the bird cage and let the bird fly. So I walked out. And, now, and Steve, I'm just, when they give you, uh, when they give you $143, that's all they give you a month. Try and live on $143. Now I wrote a little book, a hand guide, how to survive in the dollar general's dollar tree on the dollar 43. You buy a sterno, you get two, you get four bricks, you get a mesh and you make yourself a cup of coffee. Steve, I'm going to have to stop you there on that excellent uh, piece of advice just for time because we have a ton of people I want to get to on the phone. Um, But that example, um, Anna, of... 15 cents to make a copy, and that's what caught what, what Steve walks away with. Um, you want to react to that as the kind of thing you're talking about? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yes. And, and, and the old way that we used to do things was that and instead of ha- helping sitting down with someone and, and working through a housing application and explaining everything and how, helping someone to fill it out, the old way of, of doing things was, here's this packet, fill it out, bring it back to me when you're done. Or go to this place and get a verification of disability. Here, fill this paper out without really explaining why and what needs to happen and and taking that person um, and helping them do that. And so even now, I mean, it it took a while to change behaviors of case managers that were used to doing it that way. It wasn't because they were trying to be mean or or didn't care. It was just that's the way it was done and that's how they were taught. And so we had to basically undo that. And even now today, I don't do as many navigation trainings as I do, as I did in the past, but I, I actually say the words that when, as a navigator, your job is to enable your client or take them by the hand and do everything for them. It's not a time to try to get them to become um, independent right now. Mm. Once they're housed and they have a roof over their head, then they can work on all all the multitude of issues they need to work on. But at the time that you're trying to house them, you will take them by the hand and you will do everything for them. Even if you have to physically take them, put them in the car, take them to an appointment. Um, But that's the way it has to happen because everyone... Everyone has a different skill set. Everyone has a different level of understanding. So there are some clients that are more self-sufficient than others. Um, but for the most part, you just have to treat people like human beings and help them through a very difficult and challenging time. And Michael, what about that? What Anna just said, how, this phrase housing first is what I hear her yeah. talking about. I know you wrote about that. Uh, I'm familiar with this idea from way back in the days of uh, early in the AIDS epidemic. Um, but w- Talk about this housing first idea in right. in the policy response. Uh, I, I'll do that. I just wanted to just, if I might underscore one thing Anna said, because it, it occurred to me when I was down there, which is that, you know, you can imagine this. You're, you're at your most desperate moment. You're, you're really completely helpless. Imagine going to an airport. You need to fly someplace, but nobody's telling you which the gate is, mm-hmm. which airport it is necessarily, and you have to figure this out for yourself in some way. It's a weird analogy, but this is the situation for many homeless people. They're navigating a system that has absolutely – it's inscrutable with everybody operating differently. So what Anna's describing is a system in which people have come together to take the person and guide them through that system, which is, of course, the only way that could possibly work. Right. And they're guiding them to that system under a policy of housing first. And what that – is it's been around for a number of years, but it's rarely implemented as effectively as Houston has. The the idea is that you, for those people who really need housing, um, 
you don't require them to f- cure their addiction or find God or do anything else first. You get them into some form of housing, not a shelter, which is not a house, but housing. Um, and if they are, if they qualify for it, um, for permanent supportive housing, so wraparound services and paid rent. And the idea is that, you know, if a person is drowning, you don't swim out there and say you have to learn to swim next time first, so we're going to, before I take you in, you're going to have to learn how to swim. You bring them back to shore and you let them figure out for themselves how to deal with the problems that they have. Um, It's... It works. That's basically what the evidence shows. It works. It's also economical. Um, people who are housed tend to stay housed, and that's much more for American taxpayers to look at things this way. That's actually the best way to do it for the cost reasons. But right. most of all, it's humane. It's it's humane, and it works. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's, it's an excellent twofer. Uh, let's go to Amanda in Minneapolis. Amanda, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, I just had a few things to say. Um, I, I'm in my late 30s, and I've been homeless on and off in my adult years, which is unfortunate because I have a small child. But um, I, I was really surprised by how often people would misjudge or have an idea of what a homeless person was or what they looked like. And also going to get assistance and, and getting resources, it, it was so difficult to obtain if anybody even could receive these benefits and get housing because everything was verbally. Nothing was like on paper, like I heard earlier. You know, there wasn't a checklist of what you need to get done. It was a, this is what you have to do. And then if you get that done, then they'll say it's something else. You know, one, one minute it was, I need to work harder. And then I'm working harder. And they're saying, I need to be humble. So it's like, there was always this, do you want to help us get you know, out of the system? Or are you just trying to keep us there? Mm-hmm. And Amanda, so I'm clear, you're saying like you'd be sitting down talking to a caseworker or somebody uh, and they would just be barking orders at you as opposed to writing down resources for you. And that was just too much to take in. Yeah. And I have a brain injury. So I've, I've had to say like, I need a different way or can I have more time? And, and it was ignored. And I feel like most of the time I was more aware of the resources out there than the case managers were. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of like... I understand that people are, you know, patients are short-staffed, but to not really train the staff is another thing, too. Thank you, Amanda. Uh, uh, Anna, would you want to respond to anything you heard from Amanda there? Uh, You know, I know this is obviously a different place, but this idea of uh, people just sort of giving you instructions verbally, not where I hear her talking about in particular about she had particular kinds of needs, uh, mentally, intellectually, emotionally, um, that that they weren't adapting to. Yeah, it's, it's very sad because that does happen. Um, and, and it's, it, it isn't just in, in a situation like she described where she has a brain injury, but it's just about uh, um, people experiencing homelessness are very sleep deprived, for example, mm. because even if they're in a shelter, there's a lot of noise, you're guarding your things. Or if you're on the streets, you're, you're guarding yourself from, from being victimized or, or victim of crime. And so, to expect someone, and this also goes to Housing First, to expect someone to be in a place where they can walk in somewhere and take a set of instructions and then have to process that and, and just go and do them um, without any support or without anybody, you know, writing it down for them or explaining what they need to do. It's very, very challenging. Mm-hmm. Exper- expecting someone to, like, get a job, for example. How can someone get a job if they're living under a bridge? How are they going to do a resume, take a shower, you know, put on nice clothes for an interview. 
Um, and, and it's just constant. They're fighting for survival every single day. They're experiencing trauma every single day. And they need a roof over their head. They need food in their bellies. They need to be stable um, and feel safe before they can try to address all of the multiple things that are going on. And so definitely um, there needs to be more understanding and compassion around how to explain things to people. Because like Michael said, it's very complicated. I need to take another break. Anna, we'll be right back. More calls and get into the history of this problem after break. Stay with us. WNYC Studios is supported by Wondery's new podcast, Black History for Real. Introducing you to the most overlooked black history makers you should already know about. Historical tea is the hottest and it pours the best. Hosted by Francesca Ramsey and Conscious Lee. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on 2.5 or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting 129. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. NYC Now delivers breaking news, top headlines, and in-depth coverage from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday, and evening. By sponsoring our programming, you'll reach a community of passionate listeners in an uncluttered audio experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to learn more. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. We're talking about solutions to homelessness this week in the wake of Jordan Neely's killing on a New York City subway train. I'm with Anna Rausch, a vice president at Coalition for the Homeless of Houston-Harris County, where her organization has been part of an effort in partnership with the city that has found far more success in reducing the number of people who fit the official definition of homelessness than other cities And I'm also with Michael Kimmelman, architecture critic for The New York Times and founder and editor-at-large of their feature, Headway, which digs into stories of progress. Michael reported on the Houston success story last year. And let's go straight to one more call before we get to some history. Uh, River here in Queens, New York. River, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, Yeah, I'm unhoused myself. It's a very dehumanizing condition. We wake up, we don't have a place to look at ourselves in the mirror, to go to the bathroom. There ain't no public restrooms anywhere in Bushwick and Ridgewood. You have to have money to use the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have money, you don't have a place to go. Um, the history of this problem is the history of colonialism and, and slavery. Um, Jordan Neely was murdered because he was a black unhoused man, and he was killed with impunity uh, by Daniel Penny. Um, there are over four, uh, 4% of all apartments in New York City are empty. That's 88,000 u- units. You, you can check my facts here. 42,000 are rent-stabilized. 42,000 rent-stabilized apartments here in New York City are empty. Meanwhile, we have a police budget that's $11 billion, um, 100,000 um, uh, evictions were processed last year um, in the year of 2022. Marshals remove um, people every day. Um, and the landlord, every landlord in an eviction court has a lawyer. Um, but the right to tenant counsel here in New York City is being eroded continually um, because it's so difficult to qualify for that program. What we need is a paradigmatic shift in the ways in which we understand housing, the ways in which we treat each other. Uh, This country operates on profit over people, and it has done that way since the first 
um, African slave was brought here, and the first indigenous Taino on so-called Hispaniola Yola was murdered. Um, that's the way this country operates, and we and a lot of us are waking up to it. For some people, being unhoused is a choice, and for other people, it's a condition. I'm going to stop you there, River, just for time. I I appreciate the point, and I hear it. And there is a lot of history here that River has pointed. River's pointed to two things. One, like some very deep history, but also uh, some very present tense about the housing markets uh, in the cities where there is uh, a rise, where the homelessness is, in fact, on the rise. And so, Michael, can we try to walk through some of this history? Um, You talk about a lot of it in your article. Um, The modern homeless crisis. Um, this began with the closing of psychiatric hospitals uh, and the sort of incentivizing of what's called single room occupancy spaces, right? Yeah. I mean, um, so you, if you go back to the mid-century in the 1960s, you have laws that are uh, passed that are basically closing of psychiatric institutions with the rise of psychotropic medications uh, and also in the face of some scandals around um, some of those asylums with the, with the with the promise that was entirely unfulfilled that there would be community services offered to people who were released from these institutions. And in fact, what happened is that the institutions were closed and people were left out on the street. At the same time, you had the closing of SROs, stand, um, uh, single room occupancy hotels, which was which were places that were. Um, for not only people who had been in institutions, but also elderly, singles, and a lot of other people who uh, were down and out. Um, And those were closed down with the idea of building more middle-class and luxury housing because those places were considered blights. And so, essentially, the the point is we (laughs) systemically, as your caller said, created homelessness. We've done this on purpose. Um... Homelessness was not really an issue uh, in in New York. It's not that there were never people who were homeless, but you didn't have what we now consider a modern homeless problem in a place like New York really until the 80s and the 90s. And, you know, this was also because of housing policies that were not just here but nationwide. So during the Reagan administration, you had a lot of incentives for single-family housing and disincentives for multifamily construction of housing. Multifamily construction of housing plummeted during mm-hmm. that period of time. Single-family zoning, as your call said, much of this was racially based as well, you know, skyrocketed. And in, in many of the places where, um, like in Los Angeles and other parts of California, where um, homelessness became a problem too. So it's a, it was a combination of things that we have done. You know, we've built a country based around tax incentives for suburbanization for people who own cars and that have essentially taken away Mm. those benefits from people who live in multifamily housing who are are poorer and that's also predominantly black and brown. So it's not a surprise that this has happened. We, We have a broken mental health system and we have a housing system now that's completely broken. I mean, in New York, forgive me for just droning on about this, but you know, uh, housing costs have gone up in New York uh, City, and New York is not alone in this, by 35%, I think, in the last couple of years. 
um, home costs up by 50%. Just a whole front in the last couple of yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and and yeah. similar things are true, I suspect, in these other big states where, where we see homeless crisis. California, Florida, Texas. Um, the, the Hearth Act is, in 2009, was the first successful legislation to really address this crisis. Um, briefly, what what is it and what did it change? And I should let uh, I should let Anna speak here about this because the Hearth Act was was what also led to um, to Houston being picked as one of the cities um, around. Well, actually, I'll take you up on that on that yeah. offer then. And as somebody who benefited directly from the Hearth Act, uh, or somebody whose work did, tell us what that was and, and how it changed the game. So basically, the Hearth Act, um, re, I can't, I don't know the word, but um, the McKinney-Vento Act was um, kept in place. And so the, the McKinney-Vento was the first act that uh, provided homeless resources to go into the communities. And so um, the Hearth Act really gave us a lot more flexible funding. Um, they, it, it consolidated a lot of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD's competitive grant process. There was an increase in prevention resources, which was very important because, you know, sometimes you can prevent someone from becoming homeless by just paying their rent for a month. Right. Um, it, it also increased um, the emphasis on performance, which was also big because they wanted to incentivize cities that were continuing to do a good job, which is why, you know, in 2012, the amount of funding that we were getting in Houston was about $25 million directly from HUD through this competition. And then now it's doubled. It's about $46 million. And so um, because of that emphasis on performance, there's a lot of, um, you know, incentives for continuing to do good. Um, there was a change in the definition of homelessness and chronic homelessness. Um, there, it was a little bit more convoluted, if, if, if that can be believed, because it's still convoluted. But um, and then there was a, also a change in like the record keeping requirements, for example. So the burden of proof on documenting that an individual actually meets the eligibility criteria for a homeless program is on the provider. And sometimes that can be very challenging, especially when you're trying to prove that someone has been homeless over for 12 cumulative months over a three-year process. So before um, it was a lot more complicated um, and, and it was just, you know, it, it was really a, a game changer, I think, for a lot of communities. The, the COC or the Continuum of Care program was established. They had the interim rule, which kind of defined what a, what a COC competition was. There was a lot of um, rules around the emergency solutions grant programs. Um, the homeless management information system, which is the client level database that we use to hold all client information um, there was a new rule that that was proposed for that as well. Um, some uniform technical requirements, uh, so, uh, some HUD data standards, so that everyone was collecting right. the same information. Confidentiality. It was, it was, it was a big. It was a big thing. So a, a lot changed bureaucratically, and it's like I, I know a lot of that might go past people. There's a lot of acronyms. There's a lot of federal policy in that, and it's just interesting to think about the connection between these wonky things that we don't hear about every day in the newspaper um, and a change on the ground in everyday life as you try to do work like that. And, and Michael, you were trying to jump in on this. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, and Anna knows uh, that I was entering into this from the outside too, so I've complained to her about all the acronyms and other things. <laughs> it's like learning in a foreign language. The short of it is, Anna, tell me if you don't agree with this, the 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 Hearth Act and, and what Houston did was to basically say 
what is it that works and how can we funnel money to that, essentially incentivize what we know actually works? So Housing First works, getting people to work together works. Um, That's at the heart of this. How can we cut through some of the stuff that was... uh, I'll give you one example I mentioned in the article that you... In Houston, you had a a housing service there that would announce occasionally uh, that there were housing vouchers available. There were tens of thousands of people who needed them. If you're homeless, you needed to hear the announcement somehow. You needed to (laughs) write in, apply... Right in by mail, snail mail, and then miraculously win a lottery in which they would write back to you to tell you you'd won if you have an address to write to, which, of course, you don't when you're homeless. It was insane. Very simple thing. The coalition and Anna and others said to the people who run the housing board, why don't we work together? Here are people who are on our list who need help. When you have housing vouchers, come to us. We can give you those people. They're out on the street, need housing. And suddenly, from housing no one with those vouchers, they were housing thousands of people. It's really quite simple. And, you know, and that example, too, makes me think, Anna, so a a theme that is coming up in our calls, you've heard the ones we take, but I'm looking at them on our board now. Um, One of the themes that's running through is disability in general um, and mental health in particular. Um, And... When I think of all of the hurdles that Michael just described and all of the hurdles that I've heard you describe, uh, that seems like that becomes a particularly acute thing. Um, Can you just talk about that in terms of is what we're seeing in our callers similar to what you're seeing in your work? Yes, um, we have a high, of course, a high rate of individual, high percentage of individuals that have a severe mental illness, um, a high percentage of individuals with a severe substance use disorder. You know, we always say that uh, by the time an individual ends up homeless, it's because they've been failed by numerous other systems multiple times. Um, And so it's not really surprising that a person, if a person already has a serious mental illness or has a predisposition to it, that it would be exacerbated in those situations Um, or using drugs or alcohol to, you know, deal with having to be on the streets and having to be, um, you know, exposed to so many horrible things and victims of crime. I mean, I, I say this a lot also, and I know it's been written up, but individuals experiencing homelessness are far more likely to be victims of crime um, and not really the the other way around. And so I think the average person, though, they don't understand if someone is in a full-blown mental health crisis that needs hospitalization or just having some symptoms of an untreated mental illness Um, They see someone struggling with mental illness um, and assume that they are dangerous or need hospitalization. But the reality is that the majority of these individuals would stabilize if they were housed and receiving the appropriate level of services. So but unfortunately, society reacts negatively due to fear, discomfort, Mm. lack of understanding. A lot of people believe they're in danger um, rather than believing that the person that is there can be helped. And then and then when cities and states criminalize homelessness, it builds on to that rhetoric that um, the com- to the community that there's a link between homelessness, crime, and being in danger. Yeah. Um, and when a situation like happened with Mr. Neely, um, then we get yeah. into those horrible situ- situations. As we start to wind down, and I want to ask you also, I mean, I know you told uh, Michael in, in his story that part of that some of this is personal for you, you know, that uh, you grew up, your your mom struggled, uh, you experienced some housing instability. And just how, did, how does that shape 
do you think that matters in your ability to to do this work? Definitely, it does matter because I, I, yeah, my mom was a single parent. My dad died when I was young. We moved here from Brazil, and so there were ten, there were some scary moments when she we were living paycheck to paycheck. And I remember we didn't really know of a lot of the resources that were available, just like a lot of people don't. And so they're going out and seeking assistance. And I remember my mom applied for um, I don't remember if it was called food stamps back then, but. They gave her $11. Like they actually Mm -hmm. sent her a check back then. It was in the 80s, I guess. (laughs) They actually mailed her a check for $11. And I'm thinking to myself now, of course, then, you know, my mom thought that was ridiculous. But now as an adult, when I think about that, I'm like, it cost them more money to, to, you know, mail that check, to have someone write that check and mail it to us. It cost them more than $11 to do that. And, and it's like ludicrous to me that you could send a mom with three kids $11 and expect that person to be able to feed their children. So, um, but that's just one of the, you know, yet another loophole, yet another thing that you have to qualify for and you have to demonstrate the need. And again, the burden is on the person seeking assistance. And then of course, on the entity that is trying to help them. And if they if that entity believes, first of all, there's lack of understanding on the person seeking assistance. And then if that organization trying to help them believes that they're going to get penalized or in trouble or have to pay back the money in some way because they're not documenting that person's eligibility effectively, um, then they're going to put a ton of loopholes and 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 things that that person is going to have to do in That's order right. to get the assistance. That's right. Michael, we've just got uh, less than two minutes left. Uh, we, there's a lot we haven't gotten to, but I want to get to people here. Michael Kimmelman, architecture critic for the New York, for the New York Times, writing about uh, homelessness. Connect the dots for folks. <laughs> um, you know, I see my job uh, as writing about the world we're building. The, literally, that is the society we're building to. Um, housing and uh, home are part of the world we build Um, and the fact that we are failing um, to build them for our you know citizens um, is it seems to me that's that's my story but I also think um, you know all of these subjects are interconnected when you when you begin to look at housing and homelessness you also do get into broken mental health care systems you get into issues of racial inequality and so forth and so I, I, you know, I guess I just have a very loose definition of the architecture for this <laughs> job. But one of the things about Headway that I think is really crucial is that we 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 want not to like publish good news or something, but we do want to f- present things that seem at least the start of a constructive conversation around issues about what we are doing, what the future might be, how how we might imagine a different scenario. Uh, or what got us into this situation in the first place. Because a lot of, you know, I think we're in a cycle of news uh, delivery and reception that can seem like, you know, just a a nightmare. Like a nightmare, but you are doing your part to bring us into a better dream. Michael Kimmelman of the New York Times, Anna Rausch, the Coalition for the Homeless of Houston and Harris County. Thank you to you both. And thank you to everybody who called. If you want to keep talking to us, go to notesfromamerica.org. Look for the little green button and leave a voice note right there on the site. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios, mixing and music by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando is our live engineer this week. Our team also includes Karen Frillman, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. 
Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for spending part of your, your Mother's Day weekend with us. Talk to you next week.